Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. During my sophomore year of college, I had the life-changing experience of studying abroad for five months at the Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies. My university was able to build a campus in Jerusalem under the strict condition that its students would maintain strict political neutrality regarding the conflict in the region. And so everyone in my student cohort was required to take classes on both Arab civilization and Jewish civilization and on Judaism and Islam. And we went on field trips all over Israel and Palestine and also Egypt and Jordan. And we had to split evenly between students studying Arabic language and students studying Hebrew. So my cohort and myself, we all came home with a deep love for all of the people and families that we met and also a deep grief about the history and the ongoing tragedy in that beautiful place. And I still have little blue bowls that are painted with flowers that I bought from a Palestinian man named Shaban in East Jerusalem. I still eat out of those bowls. And I remember the kindness and goodness of those people that I loved there. But while I still retain memories and I have followed the political situation in the region throughout my life, never until this year had I thought specifically about women's rights and women's activism in Palestine. So I was really excited to find the book, Palestinian Women's Activism, Nationalism, Secularism, Islamism by Dr. Isla Jad. And I am honored to welcome Dr. Jad to the podcast today. Welcome, Isla. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'm wondering if you can introduce us first to yourself. Tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, your family, and the work that you do. Well, I have been working at Beersdorf University since uh, ni- 1984, and so then I was a lecturer and then associate professor in gender studies. Uh, originally, I'm uh, uh, from Egypt, and I moved to live in Palestine in 1979. I have three kids. And I consider myself as, uh, first of all, as a feminist activist. And also I am a researcher and lecturer in, on gender issues and women's studies at Beersley University. Hmm. Why did you move to Palestine from Egypt? My husband is a Palestinian. Ah, okay. Where did you meet each other? In Cairo University. And had he been there studying for his degree in Cairo? And so you... Yeah, he was studying his BA at Carrier University, Faculty of Political Science and Economy. And once we graduated from Cairo University, we left Egypt and then we traveled a lot to Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and then we got settled in, in France to do our master's degree. I came back to Palestine and then he went back to finish his PhD after finishing our master's degree. And once I finished my duties with my kids, you know, I went back to the UK to, to finish my PhD at SOAS University in Gender and Development Studies. Wow. That's so cool. I I actually went back for my master's degree after my duties with my kids, too. My kids got a little older, and I went back to school, and I'm actually starting a PhD now, but a little bit later in life. I didn't know that about you. That's so cool. (laughs) So I'm wondering if you can start us off first before we dig into your book. Could you tell us and just kind of refresh maybe listeners' memory about Palestine, where even where it's located on a map and a little bit about the history of Palestine. I Again, I feel really lucky that I got to study Palestine in depth because of my study abroad program. But if I hadn't, I don't know that I would know very much about it. So maybe you could just give us a, a little bit of background information. Palestine, it's a tiny country. It used to be part of the greater Syria till the First World War. 
after the First World War ended with the defeat of the Ottoman Empire, the Greater Syria was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. So there was the end of the war. There was a famous agreement between Britain and, and France to divide the land that was under control of the with the Ottoman Empire. So uh, Syria and Lebanon went to France. And Iraq went to Britain and as well the, the Palestinian territories. And it didn't go to with the rest of the greater Syria under the control of the French as it's supposed to be at the beginning because the United Kingdom realized that it's very important to protect its maritime road to India through the Suez Canal. So under the the pretext of protecting the Jewish community in Palestine, they put Palestine under the directorship of the British mandate. That was in 1917. And since then, the presence of Great Britain, you know, in, in Palestine, it gave the infamous, you know, promise of the Balfour Declaration. That was also in 1917 to create a Jewish homeland for the Jews in Palestine. And since then, we are in a continuous war with the Zionist movement that was behind the idea of creating a Jewish national state, a Jewish national home, as it was in the declaration. After the end of the Second World War, the intentions of the Zionist movement became clear that they are aiming to establish a state, not having just a Jewish homeland. And since then, as I said, we are in continuous war over the land, over the territory and the population. I mean, you know, Palestinians are increasing in number. And in the meanwhile, the Zionist movement is doing everything to bring more Jewish immigrants from all over the world to the land of Palestine. And geographically speaking, Palestine is located north or northeast of Egypt. It is to the west of the Jordanian, you know, Jordan. And it is to the south of, of Lebanon. And to the west, there is the Mediterranean Sea. So it's squeezed between three Arab countries and the Mediterranean Sea. We are talking about, as you know, a space of 27, altogether 27 southern kilometers. And the population now, there's an estimate that we are having an equal number of Jews and an equal number of Arab, the Palestinians, around 5.5 million on both sides. Wow, I did not know that. That's amazing. I had no idea. That's changed. I mean, has so the, has the population of Palestine grown at a greater pace than the population of Israel? In general, yes, because the uh, population increase, you know, Palestinians' natality is growing faster than the Jewish, you know, population. So if we count Palestinians inside Israel, around 2 million and another 2 million and a half in the West Bank and another, you know, 2 million in the West Bank and another less than 2 million in Gaza. So we are talking about 5.5 and a half million Palestinians in all over a historical Palestine. Some, some estimate it says it's around 6 million uh, Palestinians. Okay. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about Palestine, maybe from the time that you moved there in 1979. What does it actually feel like? What are some of the laws, the like the political situation of Palestine and what it feels like to be a Palestinian citizen? In the political situation, it's always in deterioration because Israel is aiming all the time to confiscate more, more land and to get rid of more population. So by doing this, you have a continuously policy of expansion of settlements, Jewish settlements on the land of the Palestinians. Even, even if you live in Israel proper, I mean, Palestinians inside Israel proper, they don't have the right, for example, to uh, to build, you know, 
buildings for, for the new generation. They have to get permits and they never get these permits. And if you build without permits, they come and destroy what you build. So the daily scene here is Israeli bulldozers destroying Palestinian homes, whether inside Israel, in Jerusalem, or in the, in the West Bank. And the purpose is to limit the demographic increase of the population and to tighten all aspects of life on the population to push them outside the land of Palestine. So by following this policy, you can imagine, you know, the daily suffering of being a Palestinian. You know, if you have properties, these properties are not guaranteed, you know, you are always under the, the harassment or in the violence of con confiscating your land or destroying your house or killing your children or blocking your mobility by the so many checkpoints, uh, separating all cities from one another, separating West Bank from Gaza, separating West Bank from Jerusalem, uh, Gazans from Jerusalem. And lots of restrictions on the movements and more and more settlements built on your own land and the zoning they are following. It's basically following a clear cut philosophy that is suffocating the Palestinian demographic growth from happening. And as I said, pushing people to leave the country and restrict their livelihood to whether in cultivating the land. As you might hear that we are witnessing, you know, a daily massacre against, for example, uh, olive trees. We are talking about more than 3 million olive trees have been uprooted or burned or cut, you know, or confiscated to replanted inside settlements. And this is to, to make the life for Palestinian peasants so hard because olive and olive trees here is the backbone of the uh, farmers' economy in in our countries. The same applies on on people living in cities. You ha you are not allowed to do any sort of economic activities without getting permits or paying enormous taxes to the Israelis. So the economic activities is so limited, and you know the possibility to find job after graduating from university is so hard, so hard. And this, of course, also a way to push people outside the country by saying that you don't have a possibility to live properly or normally in this place. So there's an, an actual concerted movement to drive Palestinians out of the land to go That's, somewhere else so they absolutely. can have the land. Yeah, yeah. So I know President Jimmy Carter referred to the state of Israel as an apartheid state a couple of decades ago. And I know that that term has been contested, whether Israel can be compared to, you know, South Africa and the apartheid. Is that a term that you think is accurate? Absolutely. It's even worse than apartheid because apartheid, you know, it discriminated against the origin, the, you know, the indigenous people of South Africa. But the Israelis, what they are doing, it's not only discriminated against the Palestinians living inside Israel proper, for example, by now re revoking even some, the nationality, the Israeli nationality and the Israeli passport that have been given to Palestinians who got married to, to Palestinians living in Israel with, who have uh, Israel already Israeli citizenship. So they issued a law to revoke this, you know, the granting of citizenship for these people, even though if you have it, you know, from two years or three years ago. And they put lots of restrictions on Palestinians within Israel proper, you know, when it comes to job opportunities, when it comes to education, especially higher education. That's why you have lots of Palestinians from inside Israel are coming to West Bank, for example, to follow universities in the West Bank or in Jerusalem. As I said, in South Africa, there was enormous forms of discrimination against the indigenous, you know, South Africans. But inside Israel and in the occupied Palestinian territories, you have this discrimination on top of it, you know, all administrative moves to push people outside. For example, if you commit anything against what they call it, the security of Israel, now they want to issue a law 
to deport these people outside Israel, to deport them to Gaza, for example. Besides, you know, in South Africa, there was some sort of zoning policy, you know, that restrict the use of the land or on the, you know, the indigenous people. In our case, they confiscate the land, even though if you are present in, beside your land, it is confiscated and you are pushed outside by a pyramid of laws and uh, regulations. You know, you have, for example, roads that you cannot use, only settlers can use. You, you have lots of benefits that the Israelis can get. The Palestinians are denied to get the same benefits, even though they have, you know, Israeli passports or Israeli ID cards. So the worst thing is that you know that they want to evacuate the land from its inhabitants. That was not the case in South Africa. South Africans stayed on their land, you know, but with the different policies they are following, the, the aim is only one thing, is how to evacuate the Palestinian land from its population and to put it under a Jewish control properly. You know, I mean, they call it a Jewish state, so they don't want anyone non-Jewish, you know, to stay on this, to stay on this land. That was not the case in South Africa. And Desmond Tutu, when he came to visit Palestine, he said what he saw in Palestine is much worse than the apartheid system in South Africa. In the news right now, I know that the even the, there are demonstrations among Israelis also who are protesting the right-wing trend of the Israeli government and just the rapid expansionism that the Zionist movement is doing right now, it's it seems like it's getting a lot worse. Is that what you're feeling there too? Absolutely, because the killing is uh, now a daily practice. We are talking about more than six, 65 Palestinians that have been killed since the beginning of this year only, since January 1st till now, it's less than two months, you have 65 Palestinians that have been killed and hundreds have been injured, you know. And if you hear the stories, you know, of the killed people, among them you will find women, you will find children, you you will find lots of passing buyers, women doing shopping, you know, and elderly going to the health clinic. Some shopkeeper is sitting in front of his shop, medical aid workers, a, a journalists, you know, the killing, you know, it touches everyone, every single person. Once you leave your house, you are never sure if you will be back or not because the settlers, the, the Jewish settlers and the army, they have total freedom under this government. And be before that also, they have total freedom, you know, to kill randomly if they feel threatened. So you find lots of stories, fabricated stories that, ah, oh, we felt that under threat. And, you know, this is to, of course, to justify the unjust killing of innocent civilians in our land. Hmm. I'm wondering if you have friendships across the lines with Israelis and if you feel support from any, you know, Jewish Israeli people that are dismayed by the actions of their government and are working for peace across those lines. Oh, yes, of course. You know, as you might know, you know, in our area, in the Arab world, in general, many Jews lived for centuries safely and in total safety, you know, in our area. But the creation of the state of Israel and claiming that this state for only Jews, it created lots of tension in the area. But we live in the land of the three you know, monolithic religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. And people in the area lived, you know, for centuries without any sort of major violence. For example, what happened in Europe, you know, and massacre, massacring Jews that happened in Jewry never happened in our area. So, of course, we discriminate clearly between Zionist aims and, and Jews in general. To your for to answer your question, of course I have lots of friends and I know lots of people on the other side and they have been active in so many organizations for human rights like Mahsum Watch, like Physicians for Human Rights. You have Bitsalim 
is an Israeli organization documenting all violations of human rights in the occupied territories or in the prison. So you have different Israeli, you know, organizations working against, you know, the policy of the state of Israel when it comes to ethnic cleansing or discriminatory violence against the Palestinians in general. I have one question to ask about the gendered aspect of repressing the Palestinian population. This was something that I had never thought of. And when and I read in your book about some of the tactics that specifically targeted girls and women. Could you talk about that? Yeah, of course, because, you know, the state of Israel sees itself and portrays its image as an integral part of the Western civilization. And it sees itself as a full-fledged, you know, civil state based on basic, you know, constitution, the basic, you know, the basic respect of principles of democracy, human rights, and all this stuff. While at the same time, it, it, it looks at the Arabs and especially Palestinians as uncivil, uh, barbaric as uh, less than humans, as Benny, a famous historian, Israeli historian, his name is Benny Morris, he described once the Palestinians as pathological killers, you know, yeah. And it looks at Palestinians as driven by uncivil values, such as they are bind by their family ties or clan ties and stuff like this. So in this regard, they see that, you know, that the women are governed by the clan, uh, clan's value, like honor, uh, the, the clan is responsible about the women's honor or whatever. So once they arrest a female, a Palestinian woman, the first thing they do is to ask the the woman to you know to 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 get rid of all her clothes, everything, and to stand in front of her interrogators completely naked. This is a way to intimidate the woman that you know she is under a threat of rape. Beside, they use the women's body as a tool to threaten. Their male relatives that we can bring your sister here, you can we can bring your mother here, and we can rape them in front of you, or you know make that prisoner hear the scream of a woman as if she is you know under rape or whatever to pressure the prisoner you know to confess of what they want you know yeah of this person uh, you know or any sort of information they want to get from the detained uh, prisoner. So beside the use of women's body, also, you know, these, for example, you have some female prisoners who have been pregnant when they were arrested. Usually, they once the baby grows up, they separate the babies from their mothers. They harass the mothers. They, you know, they offer very minimal medical aid to female, the policy of beating, collective punishment, you know, also the women... On the checkpoint, sometimes they are used as human shields to protect the Israeli military vehicles, you know, to to protect it when they enter a camp or a densely populated area. So you have many different forms of, of harassment and the use of women's body as a marker, you know, to shame her community and her society. And that was documented by many Palestinian prisoners who spoke about this kind of treatment they get once they are under interrogation in Israeli, in many Israeli courts, courts. And of course, you know, the judges don't do anything about it. Yeah, I, that was a horrifying part of the book for me to read. And, and I also remember reading that in addition to those tactics, that some of the other effects on girls and women were that when the Israeli government would close schools or make restrictions on women's movement and just the mounting impoverishment of the Palestinian population, that led many girls to drop out of school and marry at an early age. And that, again, was something that I hadn't thought of, that those restrictions would have a specific effect on girls and women. 
Sure, because when you harass continuously students in their way to school, so lots of families they get afraid, you know, on, and they want to protect, of course, their girls and also boys, you know. Sometimes mm-hmm. boys drop out of school, you know, because the level of poverty is very high. And for girls, they are afraid that they might be, you know, arrested or wounded. So they, if they are under continuous harassment, they, you know, stop girls from going to school as what happened in the first intifada, for example, in 87 to 92 when they closed all schools in the West Bank and Gaza, including kindergarten for two years and a half, you know, and the kids were, you know, scattered everywhere. And we formed popular committees to give them some education in our homes or in churches or in mosques. Besides, they closed down all universities in the West Bank and Gaza for four years. We were not allowed to step into the campus, even to get our books or equipments, you know. So they use many uh, tools like this as a collective punishment. And the main purpose for all this collective punishment, as I said before, is to kick the population out. Because you cannot, you know, you cannot really bear to see your kids without any sort of education for two years and a half. So... Some people took their children and went went outside the territories to find alternative schools or alternative, you know, education for, for their kids. So, yes, collective punishment is, is used excessively. And, of course, it affects a lot of girls and girls' education. And in the first intifada led to, you know, to find lots of girls married at early age, you know, at age 15 or 16. Can you remind us, what does intifada mean? There was the first intifada and the second intifada. And can you just briefly describe what that meant? The first intifada, intifada means in English uprising. And Mm. it was a popular protest movement against the Israelis. And it took it took the forms of, you know, throwing stones at Israeli soldiers, raising Palestinian flags, singing national songs, building, you know, barricades to prevent the army from entering your area by very, you know, primitive means like, you know, garbage pin or tires or used tires or whatever. And it was also accompanied by strikes, closure of all shops or all institutions in protest of the presence of the the army. And it also showed lots of demonstrations in which women participated widely because we have had enough of the Israeli presence. We feel that the Israeli occupation forces is blocking the, you know, the future for the Palestinian youth and adults from doing any anything. You cannot control your land. You cannot control your economy. You cannot con- control your movement. You cannot, you cannot even uh, control getting education or any health care because the army was everywhere. You know, blocking your way to do any anything even if you want to issue a birth certificate you have to get it from to get permission from the army and the army authority they called it the israeli civil administration and it was not at all civil it was all militaries you know control controlling the population and they are still there even even though with the presence of a palestinian authority the Israeli so-called the civil you know, administration is still there and co- controlling all aspects of our life as used to be the case before. And the Palestinian Authority is just a facade, you know, but the real decision makers are the Israelis. So that was the first uprising that ended up by the Oslo Agreement between Israelis and Palestinians in 1993. And according to the Oslo Agreement, the leaders of the Palestinian people in the diaspora, the Palestine Liberation Organization, the leadership of the Palestinians will come back home and it will administer the territories instead of the Israelis. And the the hope was to establish a Palestinian viable uh, state. 
but Rabin, who signed the Oslo Agreement with the Palestinian Liberation Organization or the PLO, was assassinated in 94 after the signing of Oslo. And of course, you know, the, the agreement was put on hold, especially after Netanyahu came to power. And since then, you know, Oslo, uh, we can say that it didn't achieve its purpose or goal, which is having a quasi-independent Palestinian state. And uh, instead, we see more confiscation of the land and more control of the Palestinian resources. I remember learning, so correct me if I'm wrong, but Itzhak Rabin was assassinated by an Israeli who was an extremist who was angry at him for trying to make peace with the Palestinians. Is that correct? Absolutely, of course. Uh, he was, was assassinated. So yeah. Rabin was assassinated, of course, by an Israeli right winger. And mm-hmm. of course, he dared to sign a peace agreement with the Israel. And of course, this put an end to uh, the Oslo agreement. And it was, it started, it was dying since its birth, you know, because. The Israeli side never implemented what they are supposed to implement, which is to seize the expansion of settlements, to leave the Palestinian economy to grow and to be under the Palestinian authority and to have Jerusalem as the capital for the state of Palestine and the return of some Palestinian refugees, not all of them, of course, according to Oslo. We we have an estimate that there is around 6 million Palestinians who live in refugee camps or in the diaspora. So anyhow, Oslo failed to achieve any tangible peace between Israelis and Palestinians. This led to the second uprising in 2000. And of course, you know, the Israelis used excessive violence from the very, very beginning of the second uprising because, of course, their image was tarnished, you know, in the first uprising to see the Israeli army fully armed to to their teeth, chasing, you know, kids and women in small streets. So they didn't want to see these massive civil demonstrations and the army is shooting at civilians, unarmed civilians. So they wanted to show that the second uprising is violent and there is as, as if, you know, Palestinian civilians are armed to, you know, and they use the pretext of self-defense, you know, to to shoot and kill any Palestinians taking part in any demonstrations or building barricades or whatever. So the second uprising was quite bloody. And as I said, the trigger was Sharon's visit, Eric Sharon's, the prime, the one of the Israeli leaders at that time to the Aqsa Mosque and the provocation, you know, for all Palestinians and particularly Muslim, that they want to change the the status quo of the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the second holy place to all Muslims all over the world. So that was the second uprising. And of course, it did not achieve any benefits as, as usual. And as I said, the Israeli policy, you know, continued to confiscate land and to suffocate the Palestinians to push them outside. So can you explain to us, and now we're going to get into the topic of your book, who are the main groups that have been fighting Israeli oppression and what are the differences between these groups? The main groups fighting the Israelis are many groups. First of all, the Palestinian refugees, because you have... Uh, still Palestinian living in ref- refugee camps who have been kicked out of their villages and cities inside, you know, the Greenland or inside Israel since uh, 48. So you have lots of camps scattered all over the West Bank and you have lots of refugees also living in Gaza. We we know that two-thirds of Gaza population are, are mainly refugees from, you know, cities and villages that have been controlled and destroyed by the Israeli authority after the establishment of the Israeli state in 1948. And even though the Jewish immigrants were in 
in dire need for for housing and you know and places to live many villages have been demolished and the houses were destroyed to prevent palestinians from going back to their homes so you have the refugees as i said in in west bank and gaza second you have the peasants who have been affected by the Israeli policy of land confiscation. You have lots of Palestinians are not allowed to cultivate their land or to grow, you know, trees on, on their land. So this is the second affected population. Third affected population is all Palestinians, you know, in general, because if, even if you don't, you know, you don't cultivate your land and you have just uh, few pieces of land or some properties, they are confiscated, you know, because they are in the way of the settlement expansion. So you can say that all Palestinians are affected by the Israeli policies in one one way or the other. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the organizations that are fighting Israeli oppression I know that the probably the two most familiar, at least to a Western audience, just a consumer of the media, would be the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and Hamas. The PLO, or the Palestine Liberation Organization, is the body that signed the Oslo Agreement with Israel to end the conflict. And in this agreement, the PLO took the path of peaceful talks and deserted violence to combat Israel to reclaim the Palestinian land. And so negotiation and peace talk was the strategy, the main strategy taken by the PLO when they signed the Oslo Agreement. But this strategy did not lead to anything. It only led to more killing of Palestinians, to more land confiscation of Palestinians, to more Judaization of the city of Jerusalem, kicking Palestinians out of the city and bringing more Jews to the city of Jerusalem because they refused to recognize that Jerusalem is the capital for the state of Palestine. And they claim that Jerusalem will be a united city because according to the armistice in 1948, the city of Jerusalem was divided to Western Jerusalem and Eastern Jerusalem. Western Jerusalem was, you know, belonging to the state of Israel and Eastern Jerusalem to the Arab state were under the Arab control. But uh, after the war of 1967, Israel united all the land of historical Palestine under its authority and occupied the West Bank, Jerusalem. And so in this respect, you know, the PLO, by signing the Oslo and having Jerusalem as the capital for the future state of Palestine, this did not materialize. And as I said, what happened, it's more Judaization, you know, to the city of Jerusalem and uh, the so-called unification of the city of Jerusalem under the Jewish control. And it never happened in the whole history of the city of Jerusalem, it was always a city open for this three monolithic religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. So claiming that unified Jerusalem is a Jewish state is completely a crazy idea that it leads always to bloodshed and conflict within this city. And it is, you know, daily, daily practice we see now every day. Palestinians realized that Oslo Agreement did not achieve anything for the people at all. And in, in the face of this reality, of course, you, we, we saw the emerging of a new opponent group to this path. And they, so they see that this negotiation, endless negotiations, we, we are negotiating the Israelis um, since more than 30 years now, and it did not lead to anything. It, on the contrary, we see more deteriorations at all levels, you know, whether in the economy or the mobility or all aspects of our life is deteriorating. So in the, in the face of this, some groups emerged to contest this strategy 
as the only strategy for achieving the Palestinian goals. And they so they see that, you know, going back to the use of violence against Israeli settlers and against Israeli soldiers is the right way to reclaim the Palestinian rights for independence and self-determination. Here's, here come the emergence of Hamas and uh, other Islamist groups like Jihad, Islamic Jihad and Hamas. Okay. One, I'm going to read a quote from the book, if that's okay, because it really struck me as something I really had never considered before. You write that, quote, Hamas has deliberately used the conflation between Islam and nationalism to nationalize Islam and confine it to the territorial context of Palestine and to Islamize Palestinian nationalism. So I thought, oh, yeah, that's definitely the way it's presented, at least in Western media. It's a conflict between Jews and Muslims, not necessarily a conflict between, you know, nations. So could you explain this issue? It is not a religious conflict. It is a national conflict, you know. And when I wrote about, you know, Hamas, Hamas is part of a bigger Islamic movement in the region that is called Muslim Brothers Brotherhood. And of course, all, all the branches of the Muslim Brothers that was established in Egypt in 1928 on the hands of Hassan al-Banna, its leader, is to establish a state, you know, based on Sharia or based on uh, Islamic religious idioms. Uh, Hamas, when it emerged, it was part of this Muslim Brother movement, but it is not working in the case of Palestine as a, a pan, you know, a pan Arab or a pan Islamic movement. And it is not, for example, fighting in Egypt or on Jordan or in any country, you know, to establish an Islamic state. It contains its activities within historical Palestine. But the core point here is that they distinguish between having a conflict with Israel because Israel is a Jewish state and, mm. you know, seeing Israel as an occupier and occupying mm. another nation. So the Islamist, all the Islamist groups, they don't fight the state of Israel because it is a Jewish state. They fight it because it is a, st a national state occupying another nation. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So specifically, how have women participated in the different branches of Palestinian activism? Well, the women were always integral part of the structure of all Palestinian parties and organizations. From the very inception of organizations and parties, you know, from the 20s onward. So Palestinian women were always part, integral part of any form of, you know, social organization or, or political organization. Thus, you know, when the Islamic movement, even though they have some conservative views on the role of women and etc., but once they were, you know, popular and they started to be elected in different universities and different institutions and later on in local councils and then the legislative election of 2006, they targeted women in, to include them, you know, in all their, their organizations and their, you know, political part. And they managed to a great deal to mobilize hundreds of thousands of women to take the streets and participate in demonstrations, participate in different popular activities like pro providing, you know, support for the Palestinian political prisoners, the support to, to families of martyrs killed by the Israeli army or settlers, support the well-being of Palestinian families, support the students in, to get a better education or establishing clinics to offer better health service, etc., etc. So women were always integral part of all these activities. I got the sense from the book that while women were always involved in the movement, and, and actually I'll mention this too here because this was su such a cool fact that 
you mentioned in the book that at the, in the very beginning, when the when, after the British mandate, when the British were in Palestine, that the British had kind of designated that in order to be considered a Palestinian, you had to be tied to the land through your father's side, like you had to have a blood tie to through your father's side, and that Palestinian women changed that rule and said, no, it, it could be through the father or the mother's side. And I thought that was really amazing. I think you mentioned that it was the first Arab nation that recognized lineage through the father or the mother, which was so cool. <laughs> yeah, this is true. <laughs> so one major theme that I got from your book was that some Palestinian women activists have felt a lot of restrictions and pressures, some from outside and some from inside. And I guess what I mean by that is you write about how Palestinian women have felt pressure. And we've talked about this on past episodes in other parts of the world as well, that, you know, colonizing nations will come into an area and kind of make women a symbol of backwardness and that they need to come in and civilize this nation because they treat their women so poorly. And you you talk about how British and Zionist leaders all gave their attention to this process of modern, quote unquote, modernizing women as a measure of the legitimacy of their power in Palestine. And so women are fighting this pressure from the outside, this judgmental and paternalistic pressure. Is, is that an accurate assessment of that situation? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, both the British mandate and the Zionist movement raised the flag of modernizing, you know, the backward nation that was plagued by chronic disease and that women were governed by their superstition and backward values about their bodies and about their children and how the Israeli uh, came to, for example, to clean up and to dry the swamps that brought malaria for lots of people and how they offered better health service to women and urged them instead of giving birth in their homes to go to hospitals. It's all propaganda, of course, because one of the things that Israelis also used to destroy is, you know, hospitals, health clinics, especially in in villages, and you have documented stories of so many Palestinian women who died while they are giving birth on the checkpoints or give birth to their babies inside ambulances, waiting to cross the checkpoints and prevented by the Israeli soldiers. So all the modernizing women was just, you know, a, a sort of whitewashing to the Israeli policies of discrimination and destroying the ability for women really to find work or to find better education. We just spoke about how they, when they closed all schools and kindergartens that, you know, led to the early marriage of some women. So they don't care about the women's education or women's health or women's, you know, prosperity. It is just a tool to as I said, to whitewash the horrible image of Israeli as apartheid state discriminating against all Palestinians, including, of course, women. So on the one hand, you have these pressures from the outside and this imperialistic, you know, colonizing influence from the outside. And then you write about the, the pressures from the inside, from the inside of the resistance movement and one term that came up a lot was the sacrificing woman, right? At least some organizations that they kind of discouraged women or the men involved in the in these organizations would sometimes prohibit and limit women's activism because they would say that women are supposed to be at home with the children and biologically like reproducing more Palestinians and that they should be transmitting their culture to the next generation. And so these women were were struggling as they were trying to, you know, be enlisted in the cause that they were experiencing oppression from within those ranks too. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, because you have a dilemma that faced the Palestinian women after the Oslo Agreement. Oslo made people to imagine 
that they are building a Palestinian state. And now the phase of national liberation came to an end, and now we are starting a phase of state building. That was an illusion that was nourished by the Oslo Agreement. Because when you talk about a phase of state building, it means that at least you control the basic elements for any state, which is the land and the population. But in the Palestinian case, you don't control either. I mean, you don't control the land. You cannot specify what is the land for the state of Palestine. And you cannot specify what is the population. Is, for example, the Palestinians living inside Israel are considered Palestinian citizens or Israeli citizens? Palestinian refugees living in Jordan are the Jordanian citizen or Palestinian citizen. Palestinians residing in Jerusalem are they, you know, Israeli ID holders or Palestinian citizen? So this illusion of, you know, as if we are becoming a free state and building the institutions or the foundations for this state was a big illusion that many women fell into its trap. That was not the case for the Islamists. The Islamists, you know, see that this is not the phase of a Palestinian state building. We are still under occupation and we are still in the phase of national liberation, you know. So all the women groups who started to claim the state for their rights that we have, we, we want equal rights to men. We, we equal rights in, in, in getting jobs, equal, equal citizen rights in, in, I don't know, you know, in mobility or in Sharia law or getting divorced or getting married, etc. It fell on deaf ears because the Palestinian Authority could not deliver on this right claiming. You know, first of all, after 2006, the second legislative election, a split happened between the PLO and the Islamist groups or Hamas movement, that the Hamas movement who won the election of the legislative election of 2006. And the split took place in 2007. And since then, there was a sort of paralysis to the Palestinian parliament or the legislative council. It doesn't exist, you know. And besides, you have more than half of the population. They tell you that we are not in a, in a phase of, of state building. We are in a phase of a national liberation. So, this combination or this equation, the Islamists managed to a great deal to discredit the feminist groups claiming for their rights and following the universal conventions like CEDAW or whatever. They managed to discredit them as limited or short-sighted women, short-sighted, who cannot see the context, you know, that we don't have a state, we don't have a parliament, we we are under occupation, we don't control the land, we don't control the population. So what right are you claiming? You know, this is not the time for the what we use to call the social agenda or the gender agenda. And instead, it is the time to sacrifice, to, to sacrifice, you know, our children, to sacrifice our life, to sacrifice our well-being for the sake of liberation. And of course, this, you know, was followed by lots of women who are the, the main target of the Israeli, you know, colonial policies. For example, it, it, this suits a lot the women, you mothers of, or families of martyrs, or families of Palestinian political prisoners. You have thousands of Palestinian prisoners in the Israeli prisons. You have thousands of Palestinian families who suffered from home dem demolition. Hundreds of thousands who suffered from land confiscation. So the basic, basic right, you know, concerning your land or your life, you know, are violated. 
and you leave this, you know, flagrant and gross violations of basic rights and you stick to rights concerning gender equality. So they managed to ridiculize and to present it as a silly demand in, in the face of all, all this death and destruction. And these women, you know, you know, selfish, just looking for their freedom of their husbands. So that was the equation that was built by the Islamists. And it, as I said, it cornered lots of, you know, nationalist, secularist, feminist women. And it gave a huge leeway for Islamist women to come to the fore and do activities that women before Oslo agreement in the national movement used to do, to do like give support to families affected by the Israeli colonial policies. Mm. Can I read a passage from your book that I, I thought was really illuminating on this topic? Sure. You write that... Islamist groups, quote, glorified mourning women, elevating their personal suffering into national defiance and resistance. And the Islamist groups portrayed the model woman as the veil-wearing caretaker of her husband and children, modest, patient, and pious, as in the past. Most importantly, she was the bearer of male children to be sacrificed in order to continue the resistance. In short, the woman as giver. In contrast, feminist activism presented a new image of the woman as urban, professional, elegant, claiming her individual rights, society, and her family. In short, the woman as taker. And you say these images all coexist. So it's very complicated for women, but they're framing it as you're, we need you to be a giver, not a taker, which ugh, would be so difficult for women to have to choose sides like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. You write a lot about Islamist women, women who are, I guess, more comfortable participating in a more traditional setting, but still want to participate. And you kind of ask in the book, or you kind of, you talk about Islamist women kind of in contrast to the feminist NGOs that are operating there. And, and you kind of ask the question, can Islamist women who don't accept the notion of gender equality, can they be feminists? And I wondered... Can they, in your view, and do other Palestinian feminists accept them as feminists? Till this, till today, I find lots of difficulties for feminist women to accept Islamist women. They mm -hmm. have in mind only one sort of feminism that is, you know, that is based on universal conventions and total equality and, you know, the rest. For Islamists, I call them the a women women's movement. I did not call them a feminist movement. However, mm. they I mean they managed to form, you know, enormous women's organizations, but they are not required to to defy the existing gender regime in general. I mean they are not defying it. They work under its rubric, you know, but even though they are working under the existing gender regime, they managed to achieve lots of gains also for women. They are targeting women in conservative families. So they are not, for example, if you have some conservative men contesting, for example, women's work, or contesting women's education, or contesting women's traveling, they are defying all of that. They travel. They leave their mm. kids and husband, and they go to conferences. They work. And they, even though they tell you that we don't believe in total equality between men and women, but when it comes to issues like work, they said, no, if we have the same work, we have to, to get the same payment. So I said that this is equality. They said, yes, of course, because we are putting the same effort as men in the work. So we have to get equal pay. We should not be paid less than men, even though men are required to take care of their families and to be the breadwinners for their families. But also women have the right, the right, you know, for work and get paid equally. So 
we are talking about some sort of feminism that is, you know, wrapped by Islamic slogans and beliefs. But underneath, there are so many water running and, you know, a current of water running to make changes to the life of these women. So we are seeing a different sort of feminism that is growing, but from within Islamic context, mm-hmm. you know, and they are open for new interpretation. And when they are cornered, for example, tradition and conservatism in Gaza, they say that once the man is killed and, and he yeah, he's a martyr, the, he, the kids should go to the family of their father. These women made lots of activities to preserve the right for the mothers to keep their children with their mothers, you see. So from within the Islamic context, a conservative context, they are slowly but gradually are making some difference to their lives and to so many other women's like them. So do you see Islamist women working together in concert with the more liberal feminist NGOs, or is there conflict between those two camps? I presented in my book, you know, a strong critique for NGOs leaders. And I was basically targeting women at the grassroots level, you know, in their different communities and the different communities affected by the Israeli policy. If we take all women in their respective communities affected by the Israeli colonial policies, we will see that women are divided by different beliefs. You will find nationalist women, Islamist women, and feminist women, etc. So if we talk about how, what is the better way to confront the colonial Israeli policy, I see here a very strong common ground for all women to stand on. But we we will be standing in one area together, but in another area we might, you know, argue, we might disagree, but we will not fight. You see my my point. We will mm-hmm. not fight because we should accept that women are different. We should accept that women, you know, are not a class. A woman is not a unifying idiom for all women. You have women situated differently and women have different interests and different needs. We have to respect these differences. If we have mutual respect for these differences, I can see that we can forge a common ground to confront the Israelis and also to confront patriarchy. Hmm. That's really inspiring. Is there anything that you'd like to leave as kind of a takeaway or a a final statement for the episode? I end this, you know, program by calling upon all women to support Palestinian people and Palestinian women in their, you know, in their search for liberation and independence. This is a just cause and we have been suffering for so long. And it's the time, you know, for all free lovers in the world to support the Palestinian cause. Is there any specific organization or any specific action that you could recommend that listeners could get involved in? Yes, to join the BDS movement, boycott and divestment and sanctions against the state of Israel. This was a fantastic, you know, a strategy that affected to a great deal the state of Israel and it tarnished its image that it wants to give about itself, that it's a state or or democratic, you know, free, democratic and human state. So the BDS movement is exactly as, you know, the the case of apartheid South Africa, that, you know, the BDS give important support to the, uh, the people of South Africa to achieve their goal in abolishing the, you know, the discriminatory regime in South Africa. I hope to have the same situation and give support to the BDS movement to abolish the discriminatory 
and a regime established in our area against the Palestinian people by the Israeli uh, state. So you have so many organizations giving direct support to Palestinian farmers. For example, the many, many supporters come to live in the villages, in the areas threatened by land confiscation, and they help in protecting and supporting the Palestinian farmers. We have many organizations supporting girls' education in our area or children's education. So I am urging everyone to join this kind of organizations, to join the BTS movement and to support the struggle of the Palestinian people and Palestinian women to seek their freedom and liberation. Well, again, I want to thank you so much, Isla Jad, for your book and for spending this time with us today on the, the episode. I'm, it's such an honor to get to know you and really, really grateful for your work. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.